when we started out, people said, you're crazy, nobody will buy this, which is, you know, the greatest compliment you can give an entrepreneur because then you know it's not being done. Data has the ability to be transformative for organizations, and we want to help organizations stop the waste and get the data they need to really execute their strategies. Hi, I'm Belded Mankus. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. The podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I'll be joined by Herman Haynes. He discusses what led him to start Onward, the firm he is CEO of, and the role his personal purpose has played in their success. He also describes the links between data quality, making good investments, and addressing the big problems we face in the world. Herman, welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. Thank you for joining us. You are the CEO of Onmut. Can you tell us both about yourself and about what Onmut does? Hi, Belden, and thank you so much for having me. Your podcasts are very inspirational, and I feel honored to be here today. Well, thank you for that. So yes, Unmut, we started four and a half years ago with my co-founder, Professor Andy Neely, who is the Senior Pro Vice-Chancellor at Cambridge University. And Unmut means grace and elegance. We thought hard about what the name should be, and what we do is thinking about helping organizations take better decisions, execute their strategy more effectively using data. But if you want to change things, you can do it in either in a very aggressive way or you can do it in a gracious way. It's a German name. It's difficult to pronounce for a lot of people, but very important name for us. And it reminds us every day as a core of our purpose. That's what we try and do. So we started it in uh, May 2018. And as you can imagine, starting a business and then about a year later being hit with COVID is challenging. But we've been incredibly successful and blessed. We've worked with organizations such as Pfizer, National Highways, Rio Tinto, Jaguar Land Rover, all sorts of really amazing organizations over our short history. You know, what we do is very different to the rest of the market. I'll get into that in a minute. But when we started out, people said, you're crazy, nobody will buy this which is, you know, the greatest compliment you can give an entrepreneur because then you know it's not been done. So we built up the organization. It's about 40 people today, but we're growing very fast. We'll probably be 100 in a year from now. And it's a very exciting journey, and we do incredibly meaningful work for our clients that we work with. And what's it like, I mean, a typical way you'd work with a client? How long does it last? We can get a sense of what do you actually do? Otherwise, it can sound very conceptual. Well, uh, absolutely. Maybe I should start by explaining the problems that our clients face and why they come to us for help. So if we look at the macro world of data, the data technology industry is a $300 billion industry technologies to do data lakes, data quality management, an enormous technology space. But when you ask CEOs of companies, do you have the data to execute your strategy? The answer is invariably no, not really. There is an enormous gap between the data you need to execute the strategy and what the organization has. 
And even with this amount of spend, so the average organization spends roughly about 5% of revenue on data acquisition, storage, analytics, and so on. So it's a big number. If you spend that kind of money and you're not closing that gap, then something's wrong in the way you're going about it. So over the years, it became apparent to me that this is a really big problem and none of the consultancies or technology vendors are addressing this problem. So we set out to solve this problem, but the first thing we realized we'd need to do is to make data understandable for the board. Many, many boards did not grow up as digital natives. So a lot of the concepts around data management and so on is difficult to understand, and they are difficult, it's a complex space. But equally, a lot of the data practitioners didn't come from a business perspective. So there's a real disconnect between how the board looks at data and how data practitioners look at it. And that disconnect causes around 70% wastage of investment. So for all of the money that organizations are spending, about 70% is wasted. Now, one of the things we realized very early on is if you're going to change this, you need to put it into a common denominator that everybody can understand. What we need to do is to reliably be able to place a value on the data assets that you have, be able to reliably show what the health of those assets are, and show what you need to do to improve on that so that you can prioritize. Because what a board and a CFO and a CEO are particularly good at is allocating capital to the things that are strategic to the organization. So if you can turn it into a language where you say, well, these are capital investments that you can make, and these are the options that you have, then the investment process becomes a lot easier for both parties, for the data practitioner and for the board. So we created new ways of understanding the value of intangibles and especially data. And we have been applying that now, as I said, with the companies that we've been working with over the past four years. And it's made a remarkable difference. One of our clients, National Highways, the CEO said in the meeting when we presented the results of our first data evaluation for them, after about half an hour, he said, I get it. I can now compare one pound of investment in concrete versus one pound of investment in data. And solving that problem sounds like a small thing, but it has enormous implications in terms of how you manage these intangible assets. Actually, it sounds like not a small thing. It sounds like a very difficult thing, particularly to get to reliable numbers. I don't know if it's possible, but is there a sort of simple way to describe how you do that? So we decode the DNA of the organization. Every organization has a set of things that they do that creates value for the stakeholders of the organization. We call them value drivers, but you can call them whatever you want, but that's the DNA code of the organization. And what business leaders do is they apply those value drivers in different proportions. In other words, you might say we're going to do more around customer acquisition or more around quality or whatever. And the challenge that every business leader faces is where do I place the emphasis? Because the choices are nearly infinite. And what sets a great strategy apart from average strategies is that you are absolutely clear about what part of your DNA 
It's the thing that gives you your advantage. And the second thing is that you amplify that. We have worked out how you do this algorithmically. And we also have worked out algorithmically how the stakeholders respond to that. So in other words, if you tweak different parts of that, you actually get different responses from stakeholders. Now, previously, this was the domain of strategy modeling. And what we're doing is we're making that algorithmic. It doesn't take the need for humans away, but it makes it reliable, repeatable, and provable. And then sitting in the intersects of this DNA are things called the data assets or any kind of asset. But we identify specifically the data assets. And because we can quantify the value impacts of the different value drivers, we can quantify how dependent the organization is on data for delivering that. And that's how we quantify the value. It's something we've patented because it is so different and unique. And it has real amazing implications for our clients. With every client we work with, the first thing to do is to understand what the data assets are that they have, what the value of those assets are, and what the health of those assets are. And that typically takes three to six months to get to that first iteration of that. Once you've got that, you can then see which assets create the most value for your stakeholders, or has at least the potential to create the most value for your stakeholders, and which ones don't. So it allows you to then prioritize to say, let's focus on the things that are really, really material for our business, because we can't solve everything. Now, in the case, say, for example, of National Highways, one of the data assets that we identified as being incredibly material for their organization is a data asset that is so simple and nobody thought of it as particularly valuable and the data asset is what they call the the road occupation management in other words what you see when they set out the cones on the motorways what we realized by applying our method is that that has big cost implications on how that's managed for the organization it has incredible safety implications if you don't manage this well and Ultimately, it has enormous implications on capacity on the motorway. So if you think about what the imperatives are for national highways, which is safety, delivery, and customer experience, what that data asset does is absolutely strategic for the organization. But until this point, people thought about it as just data about the cones being set out. So us showing how that data asset and the value drivers impacts the stakeholders of the organization in a very material way, we could then say, well, this thing that you never thought was that important has so many value implications for the organization. It can create extra capacity on the motorways without having to do carbon producing concrete or lots of things. So in other words, if you want to increase the capacity on the motorways by 1%, the cost of that is enormous. Whereas through data, you can improve the capacity by even more than 1% if you manage it well. So the first thing is understanding the, the value of that asset. The second thing is understanding what the health of that asset is. So in other words, if the health of the asset is fit for purpose for optimally scheduling the roadworks, you will be reducing delays on the motorways, you'll be improving safety, and you'll be reducing cost. What that led to was in some cases as much as three times duplication of road occupation. So for example, if somebody needed to cut the grass next to the road, they would schedule putting out the cones. 
if they needed to paint the lines, they would schedule putting out the curtains, etc. Now, if this data is not in great shape, people weren't realizing that they were duplicating this activity, which cost roughly £70,000 a go. And it has safety implications for the people setting out the cones. It's a, quite a dangerous job. And actually, it has implications for motorists because it's proven that where you have roadworks and cones on the road, accidents increase. So by investing quite a small amount in fixing this data asset, we were able to make a material change to the business. And that's what we do for all of our customers. We do the valuation and we do the health check very scientifically, robustly repeatable. And in many cases, we help our clients do it for themselves going forward. But it has enormous implications, you can imagine, for Pfizer having better data about COVID. For any organization, has amazing implications. Some of the work we can't really talk about because it is very confidential. But if you can understand the DNA of the organization reliably and model it and understand which assets has the biggest impact on that, it is super valuable. We genuinely believe that the time has come for us to think differently rather than the industrial decision-making models that we have, the tailorist model, which segments everything into little manageable chunks. It's causing enormous damage to the planet and to society. And you can't solve these kind of problems if you try and solve them in little organizational components. You need to look at it in a systemic way, in a value flow way, and then focus on the things that are really material. Data has the ability to be transformative for organizations, and we want to help organizations stop the waste and get the data they need to really execute their strategies. It sounds like that purpose existed before the business. Correct. It's something that I've been passionate about. I, you know, I'm on the Asperger's scale, so I think about things very differently to most people. I seem to think more in terms of systems and so on than in terms of how people feel, which isn't necessarily always a good thing, but it is helpful in terms of being more systematic in your thinking when it comes to these kind of things. So the way I'm wired naturally leads me to think about things differently. It's been very clear to me for many years that the way we think about problems in a reductionist way is not solving some of the big themes of our time, whether it's the NHS not functioning properly or whatever. At Hanwood, we celebrate neurodiversity and we allow people to think differently about these problems. And you require lots of different ways of thinking to solve these problems. So the purpose of Anmut is to help organizations get better at this. But it's something that I've cared about for many years. In EY, I started an initiative on long-term value to help the investment chain. So many people would say the capitalist system is broken. I think it has many advantages, but there is a lack of understanding in the decision-making between the investor, the fund manager, the corporate operator, if you want. And what's happening is that the reason there is that disconnect is because the language we use to communicate value is limited to the income statement and balance sheet. And that's only 10% of the value. That's the tangible value. The intangible value is the 90%, which is the thing that really creates the value. So if we don't have a language that allows us to communicate how we create value, we will take short-term decisions that damage the planet because the only thing that we can measure is the short-term profitability. 
So there's an urgency to making this happen. And Anmut is doing it in a very practical way, in a way that I could do with a startup and not have the resources of a global company. We truly believe we're going to change the world. But if you don't believe that, there's no point. You know, everybody who does a startup knows it's very, very hard. And you wouldn't do it if it's not for the purpose. I know very few people who do it purely for the money. Mm. So it sounds like you've got a purpose about helping organizations make better decisions. That focuses you in on specific clients and their business. But it also sounds like you have a much more expansive, broader purpose that sort of through that, you're going to kind of get capitalism on a better basis, not just for your individual clients sort of making better decisions that give them a competitive advantage. Yes, let's hope that happens. But also that by doing that, you're going to shift the terms of debate, change the way the whole system works. I mean, is that a sort of fair statement? It, it is. It is. I genuinely believe that each of the 8 billion people on the planet have a unique purpose. And if we don't make the effort to understand that and understand how we fulfill our purpose, what I think it leads to is enormous issues that people are trying to live a purpose that's not theirs. And I think it causes enormous missed opportunity. So understanding why we are here in this short time on earth that we actually do something purposeful or meaningful with it is critical. So what we do in business is just a manifestation of that. And we are not here for ourselves. We are here to serve others. That's our core purpose. And our businesses should be there to serve others. They don't exist just for one stakeholder. They exist because they are part of something much bigger. So that's how I view it. I know there are others that would disagree with me, but I think you can run very successful and profitable businesses doing that, but it's not about the profit. Were there other people sort of along that journey with you that have been part of that exploration all along, or was this more you, almost like the lone inventor, pursuing it? How did that process occur? Um, wow, that's a good question. I think the purpose is mine. The how we make it happen, there are so many people that have been influential throughout my whole life in so many different ways. My mother was a missionary, uh, but she also ran her own business to fund the missionary work. Professors at university that I found inspirational because they got to the essence of some of the big issues. Some of the business leaders that I've worked for and with over the years, some of my clients and many employees have been part of shaping my thinking. And even though we start off with a purpose, we never quite know how it's going to unfold because that's the wonder of life. You get the ingredients along the way and you kind of say, I wonder how this would work. So the purpose is important because it keeps you going, but you don't know exactly how the journey is going to pan out and who's going to be on the journey with you. And I think it's important to be clear about that because the journey isn't for everybody. Everybody should have their own purpose. And if their purpose isn't compatible with what you're trying to do as a business, then it's no shame in saying it's not the right place for them. Mm -hmm. What would you say your strategy is? So we have a three-phase strategy. The first phase, we are now sort of reaching completion. Because to take the ideas of can you place a value on data, can you understand the health of the data through 
machine learning and signal processing, can you impact the outcomes of the organization with that? And so that the first part of the journey where we've proven that is never complete, but then it needs to scale. So we're now going into the next stage of it, which is we would like what we do to be of benefit to thousands of organizations. So we are building repeatable methods and tools that others can use as well. And that will probably be another three, four year journey. But then we really want to accelerate the benefit of data. In other words, helping others where they have gaps in their data, find the data quickly that they need, which is the third phase. So that's our strategy. We started off as a consulting organization because that's what I know what to do. I've been doing that for many years. And I knew that we could do work, build IP, test the use cases with with clients during that phase. And now we're in a stage where we're turning that into repeatable product and tools over the next few years. So the strategy is fairly simple. We know that we need to achieve certain financial targets to be able to execute the vision. We know that we need to attract the best talent we can get in order to make that work. And we know we need to educate the market, which we continue to do. When you say tools, I kind of hear that as software, systems, platforms, whatever, something that clients can use much more on their own. They may need some assistance getting going, but it's not a consulting model. It's a sort of build once, use many model. Correct. Okay. So the large organizations can afford the kind of strategy consulting that we do. And because it's a very specialized skill, strategy consulting is one of the hardest things to scale in terms of consulting. So we have made an enormous amount of effort and investment over the past four years to ensure that the methods and the processes are rigorous and repeatable. I think there will always be a need for strategy advice about creating options and thinking through those, understanding what are the most valuable data assets, what's the health of those, will allow for organizations that are smaller that can't afford the multi-million kind of project to actually be equipped to help themselves. And we will supplement that with a strong education program to help practitioners with that. And ultimately, we will be open sourcing this because the money always follows if you do the right thing. Um, but it's not just about the money. Yeah. I get the sense that this sort of three-phase strategy is something you developed. You know, startups often work that way. The founder knows what they need to do, and that's it. That's the strategy. Was it that way, or was there something else that was going on? It is pretty much that. But equally, I would say that the strategy is much, much richer for everybody that's been involved along the journey. The broad framework is uh, comes from me. The way we do it is very much everybody in the organization, even our clients. You know, I, I would be remiss not to acknowledge the enormous contribution that every client interaction makes. Even discussions like this, you know, makes us think about all sorts of things. You know, are we doing the right thing? Should we change tack? And it's very, very important to do that. Um, one of the things I'm very interested in is the way in which strategy development and strategy implementation are becoming more and more the same thing. And therefore, the strategy itself needs to be much more inclusive, not just internally, 
but as I was just saying, you know, sort of learning from the external world and involving them in thinking that through has got to be the future of how strategy works. I'd agree with that. I think the linear way of developing strategy, it's a sort of a mixture of the industrial age as well as the military way of doing strategy. You know, if you look at the war in Ukraine at the moment, one of the reasons Ukraine has been very successful is it is a live strategy that is collectively created with feedback loops, which we now can do. And Ukraine has used that ability to create fast feedback loops and communication to constantly understand what's happening at the front line. And I think that is what strategy is about. And it's one of the core reasons why we think we are having success with the way we think about data. Data is that avatar of the health of the organization. It's the thing where you actually collectively share the experience. Data is that collection of what's happening at the front end and what you're trying to achieve strategically. And if the data is in a good health, you actually have that ability to understand really what's happening with your customer or with your supply chain or whatever. You don't necessarily change the vision of the organization or even the strategy day to day, but how you execute the strategy is clearly influenced because you have infinite number of choices you can make every day. And having the right data around that is an enormous strategic advantage. So we see that everywhere. If we look at the NHS, which is something I would love to one day help with, the decision making is strange because we know that the cost of somebody ending up in hospital is very high. We know that our resources are incredibly stretched in the hospitals. But equally, we are not looking at the feeder systems, the care homes, etc. Part of that is a data problem. It's a shared data problem between the different ecosystem components. These are the kind of problems that I think we can make an enormous difference to in the world in every kind of way. But making it practical, understanding the DNA of the value creation system is critical to do that. And it is possible. Mm -hmm. As you've been on this journey, creating what I'd call a purposeful strategy, what surprised you most? A number of things. One is doing a journey like this is very tough, but having the clear purpose has an enormous energizing effect so that you never even contemplate giving up. Even when you know the cash isn't in the door and you think about how am I going to pay the staff next month or something that you thought is a fairly straightforward technology development turns out to be more complex than you expected or a client deal doesn't come through or whatever. The purpose is the thing that says, well, it's just another problem to solve. That's probably the biggest surprise for me because the first time I've been a real entrepreneur where I've had to take full responsibility for everything. If I didn't have this strong sense of purpose, I think I'd probably say, well, it's so much easier just to become a partner again in one of the big firms. Yeah. What's been the most difficult bit of it? Initially, people thought this is so crazy and undoable that it's not even worth trying. And you need to find clients that are going to be crazy enough with you to do that and get the, the benefits. So that first stage, that was difficult. In the early stages, we were quite a small organization with some incredibly smart people that came out of university. And what I found is the people that have been untainted with the reality of life are often better at making a vision happen. When we started scaling and we brought in senior people, quite a lot of them struggle to have the belief that this is truly possible. It's like that saying that, you know, 
A man can go without food for 30 days, you can go without water for three days, you can go without air for a few minutes, but you can't live without hope. And the thing that I found challenging was as you scale a business like that, you'd love to get people with experience, but you want them to also have the hope and the belief that this is going to happen. And not everybody that joined us could do that, especially the more senior people. I found that especially painful. How do you deal with somebody who truly doesn't actually think that you can change the world? Because if you don't believe you're going to change the world, you shouldn't even try. Hmm. And um, how have you changed through the process? What have you learned along the way? Well, I've become fatter. (laughs) 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 Um, I think I've changed in a number of ways. One is I've got a different perspective on problems. You know, I think when I was still working in the large organizations, small things can seem like big things. And actually having a different perspective about the importance of what you're doing. Even relatively big challenges become, saying it's manageable, it probably doesn't do it justice, but it's that perspective that you have. It's a different perspective when you know you will not fail because you have to make it happen. Hmm. I think that's the biggest change in me. If you do something that you truly feel you're being called for, you grow spiritually as well. And what advice, if any, might you give to a, you know, a business leader who themselves were wrestling with questions of their organization's purpose and how you come up with a strategy that really brings it alive? I can only say what I know, but I think as the leader of the business, the purpose has to be true with your own North Star in life. In other words, you can't passionately execute a purpose that doesn't come from within you, what you truly believe, what you're gifted to, what your abilities, your personality, and the experiences that have shaped you in life. If you're not acutely aware of those and observe how that impacts your thinking, I think it will be difficult to shape a purpose that you can energize yourself. What I do think is important is to be clear about the purpose regardless and be clear about what the organization isn't going to pursue. I see too many large organizations fudging it, saying we're everything to everybody, and I don't think you can be fundamentally successful. That causes confusion. If you think about every organization, if it has a unique purpose, there shouldn't really be competition. But that's not the way the world works, is it? A lot of business strategy is extremely concerned about the competition rather than about the space that you should be occupying. That's my philosophy. I don't know if that would be of use to anybody, but that's certainly how I view the world. Mm -hmm. The kernel there of, of what you're saying, the advice would be focus on your own organization's purpose, not what other organizations are up to. And obviously you need to understand what's going on in the world, but don't get obsessed by competitors and responding to them. Almost kind of look within to see what, what are you really all about? Exactly. One of the things I learned when I started doing Anmut was meditation and learning how to be aware of what's going on inside you. I'm not saying everybody needs to do meditation, but you know, it's certainly people like Ray Dalio has found the same benefit of being able to be acutely aware of the things going on around you. If you're not self-aware, 
I cannot see how you can be an effective leader. And that self-awareness will highlight what your purpose is. Um, I would ask you a question. What advice would you give an organization or a leader? Personally, a lot of what you said resonates with me, particularly the importance of thinking about the broader system, the extent to which businesses can deeply impact some of the big problems that we have. I'd go so far as to say governments have a place in all of that, but most of these issues are not going to get sorted out by government. I think enlightened, purposeful business leaders with effective strategies where they are thinking systemically are going to make the difference. Oh, I agree with that. I agree with that. And I I think it's um, businesses that understand that they don't exist just for the investor, I think is critical. And one of the other reasons why I think you're right is that we don't have a global governance system that works for governments. We know that there's extreme tension, whereas businesses have the ability to deploy resources globally. And some of these are global nature problems. The climate doesn't exist just in one country. Well, Herman, I think you're the first one of my guests who's ever asked me that question, which is really great. So thank you for that. (laughs) And thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Belden. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. Please email any questions or suggestions to belden at mancus.com. In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed this episode, we release a new episode weekly. Don't forget to subscribe. Thanks again, and join us soon for the next episode of The Purposeful Strategist.